Take your Bible tonight and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms 126. Psalm 126 in the scripture. And what a blessing it's been. I'll say, I just thank the Lord for this place. And I thank the Lord for the good churches around the country that are just standing true and getting it done. You know, one of the tactics of the devil is to spread misinformation. You know that. A few years ago, I was in the D.C. area. I was in northern Virginia, just Spotsylvania County. And uh, there was a, a man in the church who taught all the branches of the Secret Service, the CIA, the FBI. And this is what he taught. He taught on this subject, the misinformation of the enemy. And one of the ways that the enemy deceives us into thinking, in our thinking is, he deceives us into thinking that he's bigger than he is, that evil is more than it is, that righteousness is less than it is, that truth is less true than it is. And uh, we need to be mindful of that, that there's a lot of misinformation disseminated by the enemy so that it can confuse, so that it can discourage, so that it can conflict, so that our thinking will not be clear. And uh, don't be deceived by the misinformation of the enemy. This is the information age, but in some cases, it's the misinformation age. You know, fake news, fake news from the enemy. And uh, the devil wants to get all that out there so that we're not sure what is true and where it is and if it's true. And, and just don't be deceived. There are 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And uh, he's got his army all across this country of people that know the Lord and love the Lord and are serving the Lord. And sometimes Sometimes it looks like uh, the devil's winning and uh, we're losing, but I can tell you the devil's already lost. At the cross, he's lost. And uh, the, he was not kind of defeated. He was not mostly defeated. He was absolutely defeated at the cross. Uh, that's where the Lord Jesus Christ took the stinger of death in him. He took our sins in his own body on the tree and he died and he was buried and he conquered sin and death and hell and rose again from the grave. So I I want to tell you, we're on the winning side. Don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. Don't let the devil deceive you into thinking anything but what is real and true. And you know, it's such a blessing tonight to see God's people gather. And every night this week, see God's people gather. You know, there's some things that an evangelist doesn't experience that a pastor does. An evangelist doesn't necessarily see the day-by-day -day growth and the struggles and people grasping truths in the midst of their struggles and moving forward and upward. And the pastor sees that because he's there all the time. An evangelist kind of sees it every time he comes. And, oh, okay, I'm glad those people are still there. But you know what an evangelist sees that a pastor doesn't necessarily see? And that's that God's working all across this country. Church after church and place after place, God's building his church. He's holding out a remnant. He is charging the gates of hell through and with the people of God. So you be encouraged tonight. I want to thank you for your kindness to me. It's always a blessing to come to Heritage Baptist Church. I'm so thankful for this place and the lighthouse that it is. I thank you for your hospitality and your kindness. Some of you've made cookies and some of you've made pound cake. And that's all I need. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go on a five-week fast once I go home. My wife's probably not even going to recognize me and I'm going to blame it squarely on y'all. And uh, I've got... I've got my cat, Oded. I named my cat Oded. His battery was still working today, so I've got Brother Denny to thank for that, so I'm very happy. 
I'm going to take, you know, we just found a little stray black cat back home and the, the boys want to keep it. And then my daughter, she wants to keep it. So we've got a dog and a cat and uh, now we've got another cat. So at least he's friendly, you know. And by the way, somebody told me after the service, his hand was like this and he was welcoming, welcoming people to come. Well, his hand's like this. I think he's telling everybody, y'all get out of here, okay? <laughs> so they need to change their hand around and get a little better psychology going on there. But uh, praise God for it. God bless you for being in the service tonight. And thank you for your singing and your participation. Let me say, I'm glad for live stream. And I know that it's being streamed to different places and people around the country and possibly around the city and around the world are watching. But you know, there's something that you miss if you're not here. Now, I'm not saying that for any negative benefit or any negative way uh, on those that are watching. But you know, the one thing that you miss when, you, when you're not here is you miss giving out. You miss saying amen so that the Lord can hear and others can hear. You miss, you miss, wow, there's just nothing that can replace. Brother, Brother Daniel and I were at lunch today. Nothing can replace face to face. And so God has given us this privilege, this blessing. Nothing can replace that. So I, I want to say when, when there, you're, you're here and you're interacting and you're all apart, uh, don't ever stop that. And don't ever settle for I'm going to stay home and, uh, and just watch it in my pajamas. Unless you're sick. Now, if you're sick, don't come and spread the love. But if you're not sick, if you're not sick, you come on and be a part. All right? Psalm 126. Let's look at what the Bible says. Psalm 126. The Bible says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Notice again verse number 5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that the power of God would fall upon us tonight. I pray for everyone here that knows you as Savior, that they'd be quickened, encouraged, strengthened, that their perspective would be cleared, and Lord, that you'd help them as they go out to see things in a new light from your angle and from your perspective and vantage point. I pray, Lord Jesus, for those that are drifting, they're saved, but they're, they're living uh, double lives, living, a, living to violate their conscience while, while still trying to serve you. Lord, I pray that they would die to, the, die to self and die to the flesh. And Lord, that they would feed the Spirit and that tonight you would encourage them to get all on board and all in with the Lord. I pray, Father, for those that are not saved. They've never passed from death to life. And yet they're here. What a miracle. What a blessing. I pray that they would hear and understand the gospel, that they would give you a clear hearing of the scripture. And Lord, that they would listen with, with attentive and open ears and that you'd bind Satan who would like to sow all kinds of doubt and misinformation in their own lives. And Lord, we'll be careful to thank you and praise you for all that you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. Now this psalm is a song of degrees. 
It was written at a time when the Lord had the enemy on the run. Not every psalm was like that. Some psalms were right in the middle of an enemy's attack. Some songs were in the midst of a valley. Some songs were up on a mountaintop. Some of the songs are psalms of the Bible. But this psalm right here is a song of degrees that relates to us how that the Lord has turned the captivity again. Now, not in every case, not in every case had the Lord turned the captivity again. But in some cases, in some cases, he had. And in some cases, he did. Well, there was captivity turned when the Lord turned the captivity in Nehemiah's day. And Nehemiah wept and prayed and fasted and was broken before the Lord. And God turned the captivity and sent he sent him and Ezra back to the land. And they were able to build the walls. And they were to seek the Lord. And even in the midst of trouble, they were able to seek the Lord. Uh, The Bible teaches us that there was captivity in Daniel's day, and Daniel sought the Lord. Now, there was not a turned captivity, but but the fact is, is that Daniel was used of God while he was in captivity. He was used of God to influence kings and nations, and the power of God was obviously sensed upon him. There was captivity in Joseph's day, when Joseph was thrown falsely accused into jail, and he was there for an indefinite period of time with no hope of getting out and God turned his captivity on a moment. One day he woke up thinking this would be just like all the other days of gone by years and this in fact ended in a way that he could never have dreamed. He woke up in jail, he ended up in the king's palace. He woke up a prisoner and he ended up second in charge of all the nation. God turned the captivity. God turned the captivity, God turned the captivity, if you will, in a spiritual sense, in Hannah's day. When Hannah lived under priests like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, men that were wicked or at least lethargic spiritually, God turned the captivity. And Hannah cried out to God. She was barren, unable to have children. She cried out to God. God heard and answered her prayer and gave her a son. She told the Lord before, before he ever answered, she said, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And that simple, humble act of surrender was used of God to to turn the captivity spiritually so that it went from the, the, from the, the cursed generation, it went from the Ichabod generation, it went from the glory has departed generation to the revival generation of Samuel. God, God cried that Samuel was one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. What did God do? He turned the captivity. God turned the captivity from the 400 years of silence in between Malachi and Matthew to the time when Jesus Christ would be born and he would live his 33 years of life on this earth and he would, he would he would promote and, and pro- proclaim the truth and then he would go and die on the cross as the truth and he would provide redemption for all mankind. This isn't the first time that God would turn the captivity and it wouldn't be the last time. God has turned the captivity and now the hearts of the children of Israel are singing. They said, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. You know, it wasn't like this. In another psalm, in another psalm, the Bible says that the heathen asked them to sing a song in Babylon. And they said, how can we sing a song of Zion in a strange land? He said, we hung our harps on the willows. We sat down by the trees and we wept. How can we sing the song of God in a strange land? But now in this passage, they're dreaming. Is this so? 
Is it real? Is God really doing this? Is God at work? Oh, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, he is. We were like them that dream. In verse 2, then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, now they're not laughing at the Israelites. Now they're not mocking the Jews. Now they're saying, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord has turned this whole thing around. Now listen to me carefully. God is not going to turn it around unless we believe him. God's not going to turn it around because of our unbelief. He's not going to turn it around because of worldly living. He's not going to turn it around because of compromise. But he will turn it around when we believe him. And when we begin to live holy lives. And when we surrender to him, then he will turn it around. And he will turn it around directly as a result of his promises, our claiming those promises, and our believing his word and obeying his word. God can turn it around. I want to say to you tonight that if your captivity is real, maybe it's a captivity in your family, and there's been some personal struggles that you personally have faced, and you say, Preacher, I, I, I'm struggling like Romans 7, Paul, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. I'm in captivity, and I'm facing captivity. I need you to turn it around personally for me. Maybe it's within your marriage or with your, in your family, and there seems to be bondage and captivity because, because you have not honored the Lord or others have not honored the Lord, God can turn your captivity around. God can turn the captivity of a church around. He can take a church that's dead and dying and just a very, very faint flicker of hope and gospel light, if any, and he can make it a blaze for God. He can turn the captivity around. God can turn the captivity around in a city, in a city. And we've seen this time and time and time again. A few years ago, Brother Ron Comfort and I were talking, and he said he read a Reader's Digest article that, that pronounced that a, per, a particular part of Rochester, New York, was one of the top, I don't know, top 20 places to live in America. And this Reader's Digest article highlighted the fact that it was due in part to the revivals of Charles Finney, 150 years ago. Now, 150 years after the man has died, still having an effect. Something powerful in that. God can turn the captivity around in a city. I know that some of you look at this and say, oh, preacher, I mean, come on. That's pie in the sky. That's dream world. Well, look at the last word of verse number one dream. That's what they thought too. They thought, how can God turn it around? Now, this is what we pray for. This is how we order our lives and what we order our lives for. This is what we believe God for. But sometimes it just seems like God can't turn it around. I want to preach to you tonight on the subject when God turns it around. And God wants to turn it around. He wants to turn this world right side up. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that these Christians went throughout the city and without the region and they preached the gospel and this, this is what the world said about them. They accused them. They said, they have turned the world upside down. Well, if the world gets turned upside down, I'm just foolish enough to believe it actually gets turned right side up. Because this world is upside down. It's upside down and mixed up and discombobulated. Am I the only one that sees this? I mean, am I? You know, since Pastor told me I could go ahead and preach two messages, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. 
Keep your finger here in Psalm 126 and we'll put a parenthesis. Turn to Judges chapter 19. That way the, the, the translators can accuse me of not preaching what, what, I, what I sent them. Judges chapter 19. I just want you to see this because this is a case in point of how the world is turned upside down. Look at this, Judges 19. Now, I'm not going to go into all the detail and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But there is a Levite who has a wife who has gone and played the harlot. She's gone away from him. And he, as a good husband, says, no, I'm going to go after her. So he goes after her, finds her in the city. She's, she's near and living where her father is. And he's going to bring her back home. So he brings her back home. But before he does, the father, her father, his father-in-law, says, stay, stay another night. Don't go. You know, they didn't have FaceTime back then. They didn't have a way to quickly communicate back then. And so, so he says, stay another night. Eat and let me take care of you. So he stays another night. And they wake up in the morning. He says, I got a nice breakfast for you. And I've got a planned picnic. And I've got lunch for us. And then we're going to enjoy the afternoon together. And he's got all kinds of plans. And he's keeping his daughter around. I mean, what good father wouldn't want to keep his daughter around? And it comes to the end of the night. And he says, he says, stay tonight. It's too late to start your journey. So he stays the next night. And this happens once, twice. And finally, this, this Levite says, no, we're leaving. It doesn't matter how late it is, we're leaving. So he leaves. And by the way, just so that I can go on record, this book is not fairy tale. It's absolute fact. This is not the figment of somebody's imagination. It's not a C.S. Lewis uh, uh, novel. This is real. This actually happened. And so this, this Levite leaves. He takes his wife with him. And they move along. And the scripture says in verse number 11, when they were by Jebus, that was a city, the day was far spent, verse 11, the servant said unto his master, come I pray thee and let us turn in unto this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. And his master said unto him, well, we will not turn aside hither into the city of a stranger that is not of the children of Israel. We will pass over to Gibeah. And he said unto his servant, come and let us draw near to one of these places to lodge all night in Gibeah or in Ramah. I mean, he's, he's saying it's time. And, and you know, it's, there's thieves out. It's time for us to turn in. They passed on and went, verse number 14, on their way. And the sun went down upon them when they were by Gibeah, which belongeth to Benjamin. They turned aside thither to go in and to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in... He sat him down in the street of the city, for there was no man that took him into his house to lodging. All right, in the next few verses, a man comes along, and he says, hey, you're sitting by the well. Hey, you don't have a place to stay. It's late. It's dark. There's thieves. This isn't a good place for you to be. Why don't you come to my house? He says, well, I've got my servant and my wife, and I've got my donkeys. Oh, yeah, bring them all to me. I've got room and plenty. I'll take care of your donkeys, and I'll take care of you. So he comes into the man's house. They eat. They make merry. They're safe. Because they're behind closed doors, but they're not so safe. Now listen to me carefully to what I'm about to say. What happens in the next few verses is a mirror of our culture. Mixed up, messed up, upside down, violent, anarchy, craziness that's going on. Notice verse number 21. So he brought him into his house and gave provender unto the asses, and they washed their feet and did eat and drink. Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial. Sons of Belial means worthless, worthless people. Now, I, the Bible's not being prejudiced. He's just, saying, he's just saying like it is. People that were just vagabonds, people that were, were filled with themselves. Another way to say sons of Belial is sons of the devil. They beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house that we may know him. Now, they didn't want to go to Starbucks. 
This was wicked and vile, what they were, what they were demanding. They wanted to know him in a wicked, intimate, physical way. Bring forth the man that came in. We saw there's new meat in this town. We want a piece of it. Now, this is the idea. Sodom, look at me, listen carefully. Sodom had invaded their city. I want to ask, has Sodom invaded your city? Has Sodom invaded your neighborhood? Has Sodom invaded your town? When you read Judges 19, anybody that has read the Bible says, wait a second, wait a second. I've seen this before. I've, I've read this. I'll tell you where you've read it. Genesis 19. It's almost a mirror image between Genesis 19 and Judges 19. Only Genesis 19 is a wicked, pagan, idolatrous, self-indulgent city. Sodom and Gomorrah. The twin cities of wickedness. These are where we get the phrase, the Sodomites. This would be the ancient LGBTQ community. And he says here, he says here, these men surround the house and they say, bring them out unto us that we may know them. In verse 23, and the man, the master of the house, went out unto them. Now, I want to give you this outline quick. All right, the translators already have it, but you don't. Here it is. Are you ready? Has Sodom invaded your city? It has. It has when demons influence men. And these demons are influencing men. By the way, all sexual perversion is satanically influenced. All of it. There are certain sins, Brother Justin, that I believe are demonic in nature. All sin is rebellion. All sin is wicked. But there are certain sins that are absolutely demonic in nature. Some sins are fleshly. Some sins are selfish. Some sins are worldly. But there are some sins that are purely diabolical. For instance, here's a man possessed with drugs. He's 120 pounds dripping wet. Are you hearing me? And it takes seven fully armed, in shape, grown police officers to hold him down and restrain him. Why? That's demonic. Here's somebody that comes in and sits in a congregation and worships with that congregation, shakes hands with that congregation, and at the end of the service gets up and kills eight, nine people. That's demonic. Now, watch this, watch this. You can talk about mental illness. You can talk about gun control. You can talk about some new law that's supposed to be passed. You can come up with whatever solution you want to, but you'll not get to the root of the problem until you deal with the demons. And I'm talking about dealing with them a Bible way. A Bible way. I saw on Drudge Report a few years or a few months ago, I saw that, the, that their one religion, the, the Catholics were called in to exercise, not... You know, <laughs> I'm talking about cast out demons. And somebody asked me, what do you think about that? I think it's a bunch of baloney. I think it's one thug mafia organization casting out demons and getting debt from another thug mafia organization. That's all I think about. And if you tell me, talk to me afterwards, I'll tell you what I really think. But the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is that's a bunch of, it's, it's just posturing by one satanically motivated organization compared to another. Now watch here. These demons are influencing men. Marks of that in our society, demons influence men when the bodies are marked and mutilated. That's a sign of demonic influence. 
Demons influence men when there's sexual perversion. Demons influence men when drugs and alcohol flow freely in the streets. Demons influence men when there is rebellion. Demons influence men when the society is on the teetering, teetering edge between anarchy and re- revolution. Demons influence men when accusation is at an all-time high. Demons influence men when the Bible is twisted for men's own purposes. Demons have influenced men. Now demons are influencing men. And the man, the master of the house, verse 23, went out unto them and said unto them, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly, seeing that this man is coming to mine house. Do not this folly. All right. Number two. Uh, Number two, you know that Sodom has invaded your city when morals cannot rise above the gutter. What do they want? They want to know this man physically, intimately. No, I don't care what society says about it. That's wicked. That's perverted. That's ungodly. And it's, it's not right, it's not wholesome, it's not natural, it's the spread of disease. A nurse said to me, who works in New York, upstate New York, you can justify the LGBTQ lifestyle if you want to, as long as you don't go into the, the, the AIDS ward of the hospital. What happens there? Well, that's their last life. And by the way, that doesn't just happen to people who are involved in LGBT. It happens to those who are involved in sexual perversion. A friend of mine who came to Christ in Shelby, North Carolina, uh, he had had a one-night stand with someone other than his wife, and he contracted the disease of AIDS. Jimmy was his name. Big, tall, six-foot-three man, usually strapping 220 pounds, great basketball player, and that disease reduced him down to 120 pounds, nothing but skin and bones, and ended up taking his life. And he would say to you that it was part of the judgment of God against his sin going outside of God's boundaries. You see, sometimes people think that we Christians are just against a certain kind of lifestyle that is being promoted. And by the way, for the record, I know I'm already thick into it, so I might as well say it. For the record, the rainbow of the LGBTQ crowd is not God's rainbow. Do you know that that rainbow has six colors? God's rainbow has seven. Did you know the color that is missing? The color of indigo, which represents redemption. You preacher, you telling me that they can't be saved? I'm telling you that anybody can be saved, but they can only be saved through the redemption and plan of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. So don't be confused by the devil's rainbow. Listen to me. They want to sexual what Sodom has invaded your city, your neighborhood your home, your town, when morals cannot rise above the gutter, when demons influence men. Watch, when folly is the order of the day. The order of the day in a good society should be responsibility, decency, courtesy, right and wrong. The order of the day in a good society should be ladies and children first. The order of society should be in a good society and a good culture should be what is just and equitable and true. Not so in this society. And by the way, I was thinking about this today, Pastor. Pastor and I went out to eat and I was thinking about this. I was thinking about why everybody is against true Bible-believing Christianity. 
It, it blows my mind. True Bible-believing Christianity exalts womanhood. When true Bible-believing Christianity is attacked and taken out, we'll just note in a moment, women don't really fare very well. Folly is the order of the day. Watch it, verse number 24. Behold, he said, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine, or his wife. Them I will bring out now, and humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man do not so vile a thing. Well, it doesn't sound like ladies are working out too well in this culture. You know why? Because this culture that was supposed to be based upon the Bible and was supposed to be based upon truth had turned away from God. And now as a result of them turning away from God, guess what happens? Demons influence men. Folly is the order of the day. Morals cannot rise above the gutter. And are you ready? Women become nothing more than objects of our convenience. You know, in a good society where morals are preached and where the Bible is exalted, guess what? Men open the door for ladies. Men have a mindset, women and children first. The men who are husbands provide for and protect their wives. Men who are fathers provide for and protect their children. You say, well, preacher, I think you're a little chauvinistic. I am a feminist. Oh, well, how's that all working out for you? I mean, be straight with me. How's feminism working out for you, ladies? It's a major, colossal catastrophe. It's not worked out in America. Do you know, it's not worked out anywhere. Why? It objectifies women. It promotes pornography. It promotes, promotes indecency. Women become a plaything. Do you know, all this talk about sex trafficking is something that should be discussed. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's the result of a feministic society that has turned its back on God. Uh, uh, a society that tries to build morals outside of the Bible. And good luck with all of that. Yeah. Wow. You see, here, that's what you have in this passage. Good. And watch, this is probably the most astounding. It says, verse 25, but the men would not hearken to him. So the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them. them. The man, we're talking about the Levite. He took his wife, his concubine, brought her forth unto them, and they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning. So here's a man that went to rescue his wife from harlotry and from the disease of it all and from the wickedness and shame of it all. On the way back home, things didn't work out so well, and his life was under threat, so he gave his wife to men of the city so they could rape her all night long. In verse number 25, it says, And when the day began to spring, they let her go. Then came the woman in the dawning of the day and fell down at the door of the man's house where her Lord was till it was light. And her Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. And behold, the woman, his concubine, was fallen down at the door of the house and her hands were upon the threshold. You see what it says? It says in verse 27, her Lord rose up in the morning. That means he opened the door, gave these perverts his wife, shut the door, and turned the lights out and went to bed. 
Sodom has invaded your city when a good night's sleep is more important than a rescue operation. Pastor and I were talking today about how complacent we as Christians have become. When sin and wickedness is all around us and rot and filth and refuse is okay, when, when, when vileness is accepted by Christians, well, it's just the way it is. No, God will not turn it around when Christians are complacent. But he will when people begin to rend their clothes and they begin to put dust and sackcloth on their head and they cry out to God and they weep and they see the situation for what it really is. Why, why, why? Tell me why your neighbors should even think about getting saved when you haven't wept for them in an all-night prayer meeting. Tell me why they should be concerned about their soul when you're not concerned about their soul. Tell me that. Somebody give me the answer to that. Somebody give me a good reason why your co-workers and your boss who may very likely be headed to hell, a hell that God did not make for them and does not want them to go to and even sent his own son to die on the cross to keep them from and you've experienced redemption and you've experienced the blessing of salvation and yet you've not shed one tear for your boss? Tell me why he should be concerned about his soul when you've not been. Tell me, tell me why the millions in the San Francisco Bay area, why, why they should be concerned about eternity when we're not concerned about eternity. We can go night after night with a sleep. You know, I know a lot of Christians that are more concerned about their sleep number than they are about the numbers of souls they brought to Jesus Christ. God help our pitiful souls when we become complacent, when the world around us is burning. How? Someone tell me how we're any different than Nero who fiddles while the world burns. No, Sodom has invaded your city. When a good night's sleep is more important than a rescue operation. When making sure that your kids have all the right education so that they can make a six-figure salary. And there's a people group somewhere waiting for a missionary to come for the first time. When we're all so concerned about all the different translations and America getting another new translation of the Bible and there are thousands of language groups that have never heard it one time and never had it one time. Someone tell me that. Someone tell me how, how, how we're going to turn this thing around. Not with that kind of attitude. Young people, if I were a young person right now sitting in this place, I guarantee you I wouldn't be thinking about getting a master's degree or a doctor's degree so that I can make a six-figure salary. I would get to the altar as quick as I could tonight and I'd say, God, the world is dying and going to hell and this world around us is so upside down and mixed up we don't even know which bathroom to go into. Oh God, I give my all on the altar. Oh God, here I am. Oh God, take my life. Do with me what you please. I'll Go to the farthest mission field. I'll forsake all for you. I'm yours. You came to this earth from heaven's glory and from heaven's grandeur to go to the cross. I'll take up my cross and follow you. God, give us some young people at the Heritage Baptist Church that will be brokenhearted over a world's condition that is upside down for Jesus Christ. You know, when that happens, you mark my words. That's when God is about to do his office work. But not until... If we can go to sleep, go days and weeks without fasting, go months and years without visiting the altar at church, without being broken over our neighbors, well, don't expect a whole lot. 
But when we get broken, we let God wash our eyes with tears so that we can see clearly and break our heart and help us to see him high and lifted up. Then God can turn this thing around. He doesn't need a lot of people. He just needs a few who are willing to leave their own comfort zone and get in the presence of heaven and the presence of God and leave the presence of God. Are you listening to me? And come to wherever God has placed them and disturb the present. You can't change the future until you're willing to disturb the present. And you will have no power whatsoever to disturb the present unless you've been in the presence of God. That's where these people had been. They'd wept and prayed. You say, how do you know it? Verse number four. He said, turn again our captivity. This is Psalm chapter 126. Would you go back there? And we'll wrap it all together. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. You know why they're saying that? Because they've experienced it. Hey, listen to me carefully. God bless all the efforts to get 30,000 pieces of literature out. I took a whole, I took probably two or three stacks and personally myself distributed them. I, I'd invited, I'd probably invited 40 people to come to this meeting and come to your Easter Sunday and I hope that they'll come. But listen to me carefully. If we do it without tears, we should expect very little. And I'll tell you, sometimes, can I tell you personally, as a Christian that passes out tracts all the time, that tries to witness on a regular basis, sometimes because people say no or they say, oh, yes, and then they don't show, we just become jaded. Well, I'll go through the motions. Don't go through the motions. Go through the motions with some emotion. Sow the word with some sowing of tears. You mark it, it'll turn the thing around. Now I want to see from this passage just a few principles and we're done. A few points. Look at Psalm 126. I want you to notice there was a problem. It was captivity. There was problem. And somebody's got to see the problem and say it and call it and recognize it and cry out to God for it. Look at it. Now in this passage, there's a problem. And then in this passage, the Bible says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. So there's passion. There's a real passion in Psalm 126. They're crying out to God. There's, there's power. There's power because they're not just sowing in tears. They're bearing precious seed. That's the power. It's in the word of God. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 is the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and watereth the earth and maketh it to bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. Listen to me. When you give out the word of God, whether it's verbally or whether it's written or whether it's preached, you can guarantee something's going to happen. <laughs> I gave a track to a guy this morning in Starbucks. Me and brother Edwin were in Starbucks and he said, oh, oh, he said, oh, he said, I I'm Buddhist. So thank you. You know, God, Truth, love, peace, all that. But, but I'm, I'm Buddhist. I said, well, good. That's, that's good. We, we're inviting everybody. So I think he didn't really feel that comfortable. And I, I don't want to make somebody uncomfortable. So he went and stood over there. Neither of us were comfortable. We didn't have our coffee yet. So anyway, um, <laughs> so he's over there and, and standing there. And, and when he slipped out the door, 
I said, hey, 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 I just want you to know there's an Easter service coming and it's going to be the greatest service on this side of the planet. You need to come to the Easter service. And I slipped him a gospel track. And I just kind of watched him. I always like to watch people. And uh, he said, hey, he kind of looked at it and he put it on a table. <laughs> well, then I started praying. Lord, help somebody that's seeking and that needs the Lord to see that and pick it up and get saved and come to this church and join and get baptized or get saved, get baptized, join up, become a preacher of the gospel. I mean, don't you think that's the way we ought to pray? I mean, I want to pray. I want my prayers to threaten the devil. I want my prayers to say the devil, to make the devil do, say, do what? He prayed what? Oh, I got to call upon a whole legion of demons to fight against that. I I want to be a threat to the devil, don't you? Am I the only one that wants to be a threat? I mean, listen, when I want to be such a troublemaker to the devil that when I die, the devil comes walking by my casket and wipes his brow and says, I'm glad that's over and walks out of the funeral home and gets clobbered in the nose by one of my converts. That's the way I want it to be. I mean, I hate the devil and I hate all the havoc he's causing. I hate it. And so I want to be a threat to the devil in my prayers and in my prayer life. And so now there's, there's a, a problem there in captivity. There's passion because they're weeping. There's power because they're sowing in tears and they're sowing precious seed. But watch, there's the promise. Look at the promise. Verse 6 is so great. It says, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now I want to give testimony to the greatness of God tonight and the power of saving souls. I mentioned the last time I was here that we'd had a Minnesota miracle and God did an amazing work that at the end of our tent meeting in Minnesota about three years two and a half years ago we asked the guy who was taking the tent down if if uh, he'd ever thought about selling one of his tents and he said I'll sell you that one you remember me telling you this story and so we bought that tent and it was a fraction of the cost of what he'd paid for it I mean a fraction it was just it was it was one-fourth of what he'd paid for it or less well uh we went and took that tent to Worcester, Massachusetts, and I gave testimony on, on Sunday night about that and how God worked in a mighty way. It was just miraculous what the Lord did. Now, I want to tell you, when God sets his people to praying, he gives them holy boldness. I'm not talking about brashness, but I'm talking about fearlessness. So I showed up there on the second Monday of our meeting, uh, the second Monday of, of the time that we were there. The first week is always preparation. And I took my son to Worcester and I took him across the street to get a haircut. And uh, he got a haircut and it was a little odd because there were three barbers and nobody was there. And there were some men outside doing some things that I didn't quite understand. But after he got a haircut, we left and, and the preacher that lived across the street, he said, you know what they do in that barber shop? This tells me this the next day. I said, no. He said, they deal drugs in there. I said, What? I said, are you kidding me? He's real streetwise. You know, this pastor had been saved in prison. And, uh, and I, he said, yeah. I said, you're kidding me. He said, I'm not kidding you. That's what they're doing, dealing drugs in there and dealing drugs on the street outside. There were junior hires that were walking down the street right past these men dealing drugs. They were oblivious. Well, I'll tell you, I probably shouldn't have thought about it, but I thought about it all day. And the more I thought about it, the angrier I became. And finally, I said to one of the fellow evangelists, I said, Josh, come with me. We're going to pay this barber a visit. So we walked into the barber shop, and Tony was cutting hair. There was only one barber now. He was cutting hair. And I said, Tony. I said, this is my friend Josh. He said, he's one of the guys that's helping us with the tent meeting, which is just three stores down. I said, Tony, 
I said, I hear a dirty rumor about this place. By the way, I'd confirmed it because there was a barber shop just down the block that had a barber that had started. And we asked him if he thought that was true. He said, I know it's true. I used to work there. That's why I moved away from there and started this barber shop. I said, Tony, I said, I heard a dirty rumor about this place. He said, oh, he said, what's that? I said, I hear you're running drugs in and out of here. Now, I said, I want you to know something that's wholly inappropriate. I said, it's wrong and it's wicked and it's immoral. And I said, I have come with three or four other men to this street, Lincoln Street, Worcester, Massachusetts, at our own personal expense to set up a gospel tent. And I said, we're not playing games. And I said, we're not going to allow that to go on. I said, we're claiming this whole street for Jesus Christ. I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray that the drug dealers stop or that God kills them. Let's pray. We took off his hat while we prayed. And I prayed right now that the drug dealers would stop their wickedness or that God would kill him. And I marched right out. You know where Tony is today? In jail. He knew that the preacher wasn't messing around. And that barber shop is closed. God did a work. There's a liquor store or a, a bar just down the way from where the tent was set up. Do you know what happened? It's closed. It was open two and a half or a year and a half ago. It's closed by the grace of God. And we're praying the liquor store will close. We're praying that whole area will be claimed for Jesus Christ. God was doing a work, a mighty work. <clears throat> this is what... <clears throat> I'm going to give you the three lessons the Lord taught me in and through this passage, the three lessons the Lord taught me in Worcester. Again, we started for two weeks and we, we went five weeks preaching the gospel. The first lesson was this. We have to move from defense to offense. Come on, preacher, go ahead. Let me say it again. We have to move from defense to offense. I was in a church just before the Worcester meeting and the chief of police, retired chief of police from Detroit came and picked me up took me up to uh, Michigan, Fostoria, where I was. And, and uh, in the course of conversation with him, he said, he said, uh, you know, he said, somewhere in the process, a business or a team or a church has to move from defense to offense. If they don't, they'll lose. And that's true. When we got to Worcester, the pastor said, now, folks, look, look, I don't want anybody walking around barefoot because there's drug needles on these streets. He said, I've lived here five years and there's always drug needles. He said, I don't want anybody walking barefoot. I don't think he was worried about the adults, but we had kids. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so, we, we're, okay, okay. He said, and by the way, he said, the guy down the way that has a shop and, and a mechanic shop, he's a terrorist. And he's a part of a terrorist cell. He said, a few weeks ago, he said, there was a lady that came dressed in a Muslim getup. And he said, she had a doll, but no child. And I went right up to her and I greeted her and said, hello, ma'am, so good to meet you. And I snatched that doll out of her hand. What a beautiful doll you have. He said, I'm feeling around, trying to listen. Is there some kind of ball or bomb or device inside? Nice, nice little doll, baby, ma'am. He said, we just need to be defensive. So we had a security team. And really, it was a bit of a comedy. We had our security team for our tent because we didn't want anybody to get run over by a car. We wanted to get the kids safely across the street. We had little earpieces. God bless all the security guys here. I'm not making fun of you. But you know, we had our little two-way radios and we were trying to do all our protection stuff and all that was important. But you know, the security team dwindled down because the first week we had five, we had, uh, we, we had five families. The next week, or the third week, we had three families. And the fourth and fifth week, we only had two families. 
<laughs> that were part of the team. And so you know what our security verse became? If I perish, I perish. And <laughs> that was our security <laughs> verse. <laughs> we had little ability, if you know what I'm saying. But we had to move from defense to offense. We had to change our thinking from, oh no, this might happen. Oh no, there might be a bomb. Oh no, there's a drug needle. And we had to go on full court press. A man named Doug Meter came and he said, you know, look, he said, I didn't drive an hour and a half to come to this area and knock on a door or just hang something on a doorknob. I'm going to go where the people are. And he began to go face to face with people. And that turned the tide. That's when people began to get saved. There were, listen to me carefully, 159 people that got saved in Worcester, Massachusetts. God did an amazing work. And it's because we had to move from defense to office. Number two, this is the lesson. We had to step out by faith. Whenever you step out by faith, you please God. I'm simply saying to the Heritage Baptist Church, God's leading you. God's trying to encourage you to reach into this neighborhood, to start this gospel effort. Don't recoil. Don't step back. Say, yes, by God's grace, we'll do it. God could use you and your own thought, your own idea to reach out to someone. Step out by faith and do it. Step out by faith. Believe that God can. Believe that God will. The third lesson is this. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do, do it. Now, the Holy Spirit will never lead in contrast to his word, but he will always lead in concert with his word. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do, do it. Just do it. And God led us. I went up to a lady. She was a Haitian lady, and she was working at a gas station. I said, excuse me, ma'am. She was coming out of a gas station. I said, excuse me, ma'am. I said, are you good at directions? She said, well, kind of so-and-so. I don't know. I said, well, I'd like to ask you a question about directions. She said, okay, go ahead and try me. I said, can you tell me how to get to heaven? <laughs> she said, well, I, I, well I, I, be good. I said, is there anything else? She said, go to church. I said, is there anything else? She said, get baptized? I said, anything else? She said, I can't think of anything. I said, ma'am, I ask that question to a lot of people, and most of them give that answer. I said, you know the problem? She said, no. I said, those are the wrong answers. I said, those can't get you to heaven. Only faith in Christ can get you to heaven. And you know, right there at that gas station on the tailgate of my truck, she bowed her head and trusted Christ as her Savior. God did a work. God did a work. Whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do, just do it. We were, we were, we were walking up and down the street. This is, I'd never done it before, but I was there with Doug Meter, and Doug Meter will get you to do some crazy things. And we stopped at the bus, and I got on the bus. I gave the bus driver, everybody on the track a bus, and I got off the bus. Hey, that'll work. Go on your way. Hey, listen to me. God, whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do, you just do it. Just honor God. Just believe that God can and he will you know what the pastor told me he said I pastored here for five years and he said I have never in five years gone through a week without walking around the church and walking around the parsonage and picking up a drug needle it's all over the place you know what he told me 12 weeks after the meeting was over he said Dwight I haven't seen one drug needle Amen. now only God could do that only God could do that, and only God should get glory for doing that. Here's the fourth and final lesson that the Lord taught me in Worcester, and that is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God yes. unto salvation. Amen. 
And if you're here tonight and you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your sins are forgiven, that your sin burden is gone, and that your home is heaven when you die, you can know that. It's not God's will for you to die and go to hell. It's not God's will for you to carry this sin burden on your shoulders, humping you down every single day and weighing you down to hell. That's not the will of God. The will of God is that you be saved and set free from your sin burden, and you be saved and set free from its consequence. God wants to turn your destiny from hell and a burning fire to eternity in heaven. That's the will of God. And over and over and over again, we saw God save families. We saw God withstand demons. We, see, we saw God move in a mighty way. We saw him do it last year in Indianapolis. And we're preparing to see God do it again this year in Newport News. But listen to me, it doesn't have to just be under a tent. It can be next door. It can be across the street. It can be down the way. It can be across the hall. It can be in the break room. It can be on the bus. It can be on the train into the city. It can be, it can be in a church service. The power of the gospel changes lives. And the power of the gospel is this. Though you're a sinner headed to hell because of your sin, Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried and rose again. And he died to save you. And he died to set you free. And he died to change your life. And if tonight you will put your faith in him, he will save you and he will change you and he will lift sin's load and he will change your destiny from an eternity to hell to an eternity to heaven. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. The Bible says that therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. I want to ask, what are you going to do with Jesus? You're going to walk out of here denying him? Rejecting him? Choosing empty, futile religion over the life that only Jesus can give? Choosing hell over heaven? Sin over righteousness? hopelessness over hope nobody would be wise doing such a thing but if you'll come to Jesus as a humble repentant sinner and believe on him the power of the gospel changes lives would you bow with me in prayer thank you for your kind attention to the Bible tonight thank you for your respectful response I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed who tonight could say preacher I'm not perfect but I know I'm saved. And if I died tonight, I know I'd go to heaven. But you'd say, preacher, I needed to hear this message. I needed to hear it to encourage me to move forward, to believe God, to oh, listen to the Holy Spirit. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand right now? Preacher, I needed it, and I'm going to trust God. God bless you. Put your hands down. I wonder if you're here tonight. You said, preacher, I've been complacent. And I've been thinking that it's okay to just have a good night's sleep when people around me are slipping into hell. I, I want God to break me of that. I want God to break my heart for souls and see people as they really are, eternal, precious souls that the Lord loves and for whom Christ died. He said, Preacher, God's spoken to me there. Would you just slip up your hand? Let me pray with you good. Praise the Lord. Question number three, I wonder, is there anybody here that would say, Preacher, I don't know what it means, but I believe God is calling me to full-time Christian ministry tonight. 
God is calling me to some kind of full-time Christian ministry. And tonight, I'm going to surrender to God's call upon my life. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Is there anybody here like that? Praise the Lord. God bless you. Anybody else, preacher? I don't know what it means. I don't know where it will lead me. But I believe God is calling me tonight to some type of full-time ministry. If that's you, anybody else? Slip up your hand. I see that. I see that. All right, if you raised your hand, I want you to come take pastor's hand tonight before you leave. Say, Pastor, tonight I'm saying yes to full-time ministry, whatever that means, wherever that will lead me. It may be right here in this body. It may be some other place, but whatever the case is, it begins tonight. Two more questions. How many of you without doubt can say, Preacher, there's some things I don't know, but there's one thing I do know. By God's grace, if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven because I've been saved. If you don't know that, don't raise your hand. But if you do, would you slip your hand up as a testimony to that fact? Preacher, I know I'm saved. There's no doubt here. Thank you. You may put your hands down. And I saw some who couldn't raise their hand. I'm so thankful, so thankful for your attention. I appreciate your honesty. I wonder if you'd say, preacher, I don't know that I'm going to heaven. I could not raise my hand, but I truly need to know. And I sincerely would like to know. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you just quietly lift your hand? Is there anybody in the building like that? Preacher, pray for me. I don't want to perish. I don't want to continue on this life with the sin burden weighing me down. Anybody at all, slip up your hand. Put it right back down in a moment. I'll remember you in prayer. Anyone? Anyone? Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that hearts would respond. Hands have been raised. Ears have been opened tonight. I pray that hearts would respond. Help us to be quick. Help us to be humble. Help us to be true when we respond. In Jesus' name.